The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by V+, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today we're speaking with Professor Tim Parkin, who was awarded a Doctorate of Philosophy at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, and who since 1989 has worked in universities in New Zealand, Australia and the UK, as well as spending over a year in Germany as a research fellow. His teaching covers both Greek and Roman history and classical languages. His main research is in ancient history, particularly Roman, social, cultural and demographic history. Welcome to the show, Tim. It's great to finally do this. I know it's been a very long time coming, and this has been a topic that we've wanted to explore for a really long time, given its relevance to the development of civilization, city life, and therefore town planning. So welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Jess. It's great to be here. Thank you both for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to having a chat. And I apologize, listeners, for my husky voice, start of winter. Um, It has not been a good start for me, so um, bear with us. And how, well, how do you, Pete? Well, uh, hello, Jess. And Tim can tell us all about the Roman remedies for colds and coughs and things like that. But, Tim, <laughs> what what drew you to the classics? Um, I'd, it's a, a good question to start with. I wish I could say it was by, as a small child, reading about Greek mythology and Homer, because that's that's the best answer. But, in fact, it was because, as a 12-year-old, I got a scholarship to go to a school and um, it was a boarding school and I absolutely loved it and I thrived there. But one of the strange things they wanted me to do was to do Latin, whereas I wanted to do business studies, as they called it. And I didn't even know what Latin was. And I looked it up and it said it was the language of the ancient Romans. So I looked up ancient Romans um, in my encyclopedia and read about that. And I thought, why on earth, 2000 years ago, why on earth would I want to do that? What relevance would that have? But anyway, I did it. And I hated it. I hated Latin in my first year. I'm being very honest with you now. But it grew on me. And by the end of my five years at that school, um, I had become totally engrossed in Latin and absolutely loved it. Um, When I went to university in Wellington in New Zealand, I'm a Kiwi, um, I was going to do chemistry and maths. And my Latin teacher, Father Leo Evert, said, no, you're going to do Latin. And so I did. And I did ancient Greek as well, which he he was a little suspicious about. He thought that was a bit of a waste of time, but Latin was essential. And I had an inspiring, I had many inspiring teachers at Victoria University of Wellington, including Alex Scobie, the late Alex Scobie, who was a Roman social historian, among many other things. And he developed in me a great love for history, but particularly for social history, for being interested in people, for being interested in ordinary people. Um, I then went to Oxford. I was lucky enough to go to Oxford and do a doctorate there. And I developed there a, an, sorry, this is a long-winded answer, but it's a true one. I developed an interest in the life cycle. I, I focused on old age in history and demography, the study of populations. And so it sort of, you know, it was a hobby that became a passion and it has been a passion from, from, from 1981, I guess, when it stopped being a labour and became a passion. So, you know, I think it's it's one that's that's uh, done me quite well, and I think I'm going to stick with it. I always remember my chemistry teacher at school saying, 
you know, because I said, I'm not going to go and do chemistry at university. I'm going to do Latin. And she said, good luck with that. If anyone can get away with that for a life career, then you probably can. And bless you, Mrs. Trotman. I think it's actually worked out quite well. So my main point is, to stop waffling, my main point is that I've never lost that passion for the classics. And I owe it all to a chance of fate, but to inspiring teachers, a couple of, or a number of inspiring teachers through the years. So that's a long answer to what drew me to the classics. Not the conventional thing of being inspired by Homer, but being inspired by New Zealand teachers, to be honest. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport, and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods, and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. And, and Tim, you're now at the University of Melbourne. Can you tell us a little bit about the faculty there and the role that you play? Thank you. I can. It's. Uh, I've been here for five years after 12 years in, in Manchester. I came here because I wanted to be back in this part of the world, and I'm I'm loving being in Melbourne. Um, it's a fabulous department, and it's one that's growing massively. We we coped in COVID uh, very well teaching online, but thankfully we're back teaching in the real world, and our student numbers are growing. One of the things I love about Melbourne is not only that I have wonderful colleagues, but also I have wonderful students, and we don't just focus on traditional classics. Anyone who's listening to this and thinking classics, well, that's you know elite, that's the old-fashioned um, just focusing on the upper classes. That's not at all what it's about. And at Melbourne, we really take it beyond the Greek and Roman worlds to the entire ancient world, taking it into the Near East, taking it Eastern as far as possible, but also applying it to the 21st century and applying it to what's relevant to Australia as well with its rich history, um, its rich ancient history as well. So we're always making those direct parallels as well. I'm very fortunate to be the Elizabeth and James Tatoulis Chair of Classics here at Melbourne. Um, Elizabeth and James Tatoulis, uh, Elizabeth and Jim, uh, have become good friends. They are Greeks who live in Melbourne and who wanted to enhance the the... Um, legacy, I suppose, the for good fortune they've had to be in Melbourne and to be able to share the pride that they share in their Greek heritage as well as its relevance to the modern world. So one of the things I love about Melbourne um, is that it has such a vibrant community, especially the Greek and Italian communities, from my perspective, um, and that they're very passionate. So a lot of my time is spent with them in public events, etc., um, not just because we're trying to raise money for the discipline, which we are, and for the university, but also because we want to show how relevant what we're doing is and how important it is to understand the past uh, while we're living in the 21st century. I mean, it's an exciting time to be alive, but also we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the history that came before us. And as as Kiwis, as, as Australians, as members of the world, you know, that legacy is very rich and very diverse and part of that is the uh, legacy that we get from the ancient world so classics and archaeology at melbourne is absolutely thriving um, because of strong colleagues because of strong students but also because of the importance of the subjects in 21st century melbourne 21st century australia it's not just about sorry it's not i'm going to say one more thing it's not about just being about job ready it's about being life ready it's about developing young people as 
citizens of Melbourne, of Australia, and of the world. Oh, oh Tim, no argument with me. Um, I think there's, uh, I'm sure from Jess as well, but teaching uh, students how to think and appreciate things from long ago. Um, well, Peter, you wouldn't be where you are today if you hadn't done Latin as a school student. I'm pretty pretty sure about that. Well, old Curie will set me on the path. Um, uh, Very good. But uh, I just wanted to talk about the chair. Now, a lot of listeners won't understand about chairs uh, at universities, and you mentioned, mm-hmm. can I call them patrons or how? Benefactors, yeah, patrons, absolutely. Yep. Uh, can, can you sort of explain what the, the, the chair means and, uh, sure. and then we'll get back to town planning stuff? Yeah, no, that's good. The the This is the fifth chair I've held. I've, I've been a professor in New Zealand, in the UK, and here now, and this is, I hope, my final job because I love being here and I want to stay here. A chair means your professor, but also it means, well, it means various things. This is the first endowed chair I've had, which means it's a professorship that has been set up partly or largely from philanthropy from the community. So a lot of people in the community, Elizabeth and James Tatoulis among them, and very, very prominently among them, um, have given money to the university in order to secure the, the um teaching of Greek and Roman classics in Melbourne in perpetuity. So I will hold the post for as long as as I'm able to, and then it will pass on to someone else. So it's a massive gift. Chair means basically, I mean, you go through a university career, you start as a lecturer, senior lecturer, um, associate professor, and then professor. You move up what the Romans would call a cursus honorum, the the run of offices that you hold. Uh, Chair means basically a professor, but it also means an established position that someone will always hold. So I have a great legacy going back. The the professorship of classics um, at Melbourne was one of the initial uh, positions set up in the 19th century. So it's a great legacy I've had, but also it means, you know, we're not just relying on government funding on student fees, but also on the goodwill of the community. People like Elizabeth and Jim Tatoulis, among others, who wanted to secure that future. So a chair means an established position. It's called the Elizabeth and James Tatoulis Chair in Classics, which I am the person currently sitting in, as it were. In fact, at Melbourne, we do have a chair that has sat in the the university for a long time, which I don't have room for in my office and also it's no longer a very comfortable chair because the springs have gone, but that's literally what it means. It means um, an established professorship within the university. Sounds like a very great honor. Well, I'm very lucky. I I don't know. I think I've got esteemed predecessors, but also it's a very, it's not only a great honor, it's also a great challenge to, to, to do justice to it, which is what I try to do by not just teaching, by not just doing my research, but also by engaging with the community and doing podcasts like this, which I, I much enjoy doing it at 7.50 in an evening. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, Tim, why is it important to study long-lost civilizations in your view? Um, it's I could spend an hour and a half just talking about that, but to give a short answer, because I've already been talking too much, to give a short answer, I think, to be honest, as a, as a human being living in the 21st century, um, to understand where we are, what we are, what's important, and to look at the future which is what we're all doing short term long term we really need to understand 
uh, the past, but also to learn from the past and learn from mistakes and learn from achievements. It's a it's a circular argument to quote Cicero at this point, the great, um, well, the fairly great Roman politician and orator and philosopher from the first century BC. Um, but he said, um, to, "We are standing on with on the we depend on we're standing on the shoulders of giants before us, but also flawed people." And so, you know, to to think about a thousand years from now, if people aren't aware of us if we've made no impact at all when we think about what's happening in the 21st century what's happening in 2023 and things are changing so much but you know we're a step in history and so we're not reinventing the wheel every every year or if we are we're wasting a lot of time we need to build on what's already come and i think it's important not to dwell on the past but to be aware of the past and to use it to help us develop in the present and the future uh, Tim, didn't uh, Cicero say Carthage must be destroyed? At no. The end of it? <laughs> at the end of it. That wasn't Cicero. Gosh, you need to come back and revise oh, your Latin, Peter. Sorry. It this was is... Cato the Elder who said that. Dago de Linda S. So Cato um, in the second century BC, Carthage was Rome's great enemy. I'll say this very quickly, but since you've asked me. Um, and Rome's policy, should Rome be aggressive or should Rome be defensive? And so one of the things was that Carthage, you know, at the top of Africa was being a constant problem to it. And according to Cato, we need to take an aggressive policy and, and wipe this country out. So wipe the city out. So whatever he was talking about, he might be talking about the cleaning of the latrines or whatever. Latrines are one of my favorite topics. Cleaning of the latrines. He would always finish every speech by saying Carthago Delinda Est. Carthage needs to be destroyed. And people got so sick of hearing him say this that in the end they finally did go and annihilate Carthage. The story is that they sowed salt into Carthage's field so that it could, ne it's not a true story, but it's, an, it's a great story, so that the uh, Carthage could never restore itself. The Romans were brutal. Much as I love Roman history, I don't necessarily love the Romans. I am fascinated by them, but Again, learning from their mistakes. They were a phenomenally aggressive um, militaristic society, many of them, in okay. its history. So, so anyway, that's... that's so, Tim, sorry. I got it half right. I, I knew the salty... No, you got it about quarter right, Peter, I'd say. Oh, right. So that's a far... I've got a little work to do, Pete. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Peter. Sorry. Um, now, <clears throat> Tim, you've talked about what are our... You know, we've got great sources of knowledge of the Romans... Uh, and you mentioned toilets even, and I suppose modern archaeology and modern technology is revealing lots more than we could have previously seen when they undug Pompeii, the, you know, the old-fashioned archaeology sure, sure. way. But, but yeah. can you talk about what we're learning new about them? Yeah, and no, also the general the, knowledge. Yeah, well, absolutely. So I always say to my students, although I was brought up as a traditional classicist and, and, and a historian, and I'm learning more and more now about the importance of material culture, I always say our most important source of knowledge about what the Roman world was like 2000 years ago is the archaeology. Both the big things, Pompeii being one example, but the city of Rome itself, and right throughout the Mediterranean world and beyond into Arabia, into Britain, etc. Archaeology on a huge scale, but also on a tiny scale. So we're always 
is finding new things. You know, a pair of dice, I always bring to the students a pair of dice from our collection at the University of Melbourne to show, you know, even the tiniest things from 2000 years ago that we get insights in the society. So archaeology is absolutely vital and there's always new stuff being dug up. It's in the news every day. But also the literature is so important because the Romans wrote about themselves. Um, they weren't they weren't modest people. They talked an awful lot about how wonderful they were. But the variety, you know, you can talk about the traditional sources, the historians like Livy and Julius Caesar himself wrote about his campaigns in the third person. Caesar did this, he said his writing. Um, but also great poetry, great works of art. Um, but also so many of the other texts that many of which have never been translated. If anyone asks, why do we still need to learn Latin and Greek? It's because we still have so much to learn from texts that have never been translated into English. Um, but also English translations from you know, 200, 100 years ago um, are very much influenced by the time they were written. So we always need fresh insights. We have masses of legal and medical texts from the ancient world, Greek and Roman, that have never been translated, more than you could read in a lifetime. Never think that we're dealing with tiny amounts of evidence. Um, so I spend a lot of my time reading legal material, reading medical material, because I'm interested in Roman law and I'm interested in Roman health. Um, there's you know, we're never, ever going to run out of material. And we learn, you know, a lot of, the, I, I gave a talk recently at a um, gerontocratic conference, um, gerontological health, geriatric medicine, um, where, I, and, you know, the question I asked the audience first is, why on earth do you want to hear from me when I'm talking about Greek medicine from 2000, 2,500 years ago? And I said, well, I read an article last week in a, in a medical journal which was talking about the benefits of alcohol in certain ways. And I said, Galen Hippocrates said exactly the same thing 2,000, 2,500 years ago. And I quoted it to them. And I said, you know, we can learn from the ancient sources, learn from their mistakes, but also learn from uh, what they got right um, to build on that knowledge. As I say, we're always building on things, even if, you know, I've always said, I don't want to travel back. Uh, if I could travel back 2,000 years in a time machine, I would, but I'd want to make sure I got a return ticket because I think it's good to be living in the 21st century. Flushable toilets, I think, are a, a great asset to humanity. But anyway, I, I diverse. I um, Getting a little bit away from your question, the sources are massive. Archaeology, written sources. Um, we don't know all the answers. We're still discovering answers. My students are helping me discover answers, but um, we're never going to run out of questions, that's for sure. And, and Tim, as part of that, is there are there new techniques and new technologies that are also uncovering additional content? Absolutely. It's a really good question. The It's not just that we're finding new evidence from new digs. So, you know, there are parts of Pompeii, for example, uh, we haven't excavated yet, but we're always finding every year we're finding hundreds of new inscriptions, new papyri, you know, the documents from Roman Egypt, new wooden tablets from other places like Roman Britain. Um, so new evidence all the time, but also new techniques. Archaeology is developing in massive strides um, and new ways of analyzing sites, new ways of discovering sites. Uh, but also we're asking new questions to the evidence that we have. So, you know, I'm interested in demography. We've never really studied populations in the way we're studying them now and learning from past population patterns to understand the future. Questions that are so topical at the moment, like gender and sexuality, 
Um, the Romans were asking similar questions 2,000 years ago. Skeletons that were excavating, that have been excavated from Pompeii and other places, hundreds of them, now new techniques, isotope analysis, DNA analysis, we're understanding new things about health in the past. I'm doing quite a lot of work at the moment on venereal disease, as I call it, to use the old-fashioned term, sexually transmitted infections, where, so gonorrhea, for example, is now taking on new um what's the word new strains if that's the right word um and to learn about the past of gonorrhea from 2000 years ago was actually helping and syphilis as well for that matter helping and, and chlamydia and herpes helping to understand where it's going in the future and the last one i'll mention in that context is climate change you know such a massive issue at the moment um it was an issue um, 2,000 years ago, because the Romans with their, it wasn't an industrial revolution, but they were, um, you know, you can still see this. If you do the core down into the Arctic, for example, and look at the ice um, from 2,000 years ago, core down and get a, a trace, you can see that the level of uh, pollution, air pollution 2,000 years ago was um, the worst it's been until uh, we've achieved much worse levels in the last uh, since the Industrial Revolution, but, you know, again, learning from the past, I think. So, yeah, new techniques, new technologies, new approaches, uh, new evidence. It's, it's, we can't afford to ignore this uh, vital, not just because it's, it's relevant and important, but also because it's fascinating. And, you know, if nothing else, it's helping our students, our young people use their brains, think about it. One of the, sorry, go on about this but one of the the wonderful things i still love about the ancient world is because we don't have all the answers we have inadequate evidence so in terms of transferable skills just to to put a student into a position where you know here's the evidence that's available on this specific topic look at it and how do you make sense of it and that is such a great skill um as we enter you know, as we move into the 21st century and there are questions we're asking, you know, chatbot, for example, the whole AI thing is moving so quickly. We need people who can work with difficult, challenging questions, uh, with fragmentary evidence, with unpredictable futures, and to be able to, you know, work on that with using their brain to their maximum capacity. And that's what it's all about, I think. Oh, oh Tim, to, this, to think freely and to... Uh, borrow from the ancients and their reflections on life and how we should live our lives. I mean, that that's um, fundamental, I would have thought. But but yeah. there is a thing that some people think the Romans were, and I'll quote, are just like, were just like us, but they had a completely different mindset to ours. Fair comment. And could you briefly outline some of their attitudes that we might today find surprising? <laughs> yeah, that's a, a really good question. Because, in, in, in two minutes, two or three minutes. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay, okay. I'll I'll be brief. But you're right. Some people think they were just like us, and you know that we're 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 progressing, etc. But there are some things. That, on my head, give you a couple of examples. In the Roman, we we tend to pride ourselves on Australia and elsewhere in the Western world, especially, but throughout the world, about egalitarian societies that were all equal. The Romans wouldn't have a bar of that. One Roman, Pliny the Younger, famously said, there's nothing so unequal as equality. 
the Romans absolutely, and I'm not not praising them for this, but the Romans absolutely lived in a hierarchical society and they didn't pretend that people were equal. We like to pretend that everyone's equal. I think we need to face up to the fact that there are massive inequalities in our society, and Romans would say that. In terms of sexuality, again, something I'm very interested in, we tend to think in terms of, of sexual activity, in terms of heterosexuality and homosexuality. Romans didn't think like that. It didn't matter the gender of the partners, what mattered to the Romans, and this again is their non-egalitarian society, what mattered was the status of the partners, not the nature of the sexual act, but the people who were involved in it, not in terms of their gender, but in terms of their relative status. The last one, and I think probably the best one to use, or the most important one, is in terms of racism. Romans did not judge people on the colour of their skin. They would have said that was absolutely absurd. It's not that they treated all people equally, far from it, as I've already said, but they tr they judged people on their, uh, on their characteristics, on the way they acted, on, on their morals. You know, they didn't, they didn't um, treat people equally, but they didn't judge people on the color of their skin. To a Roman, that would just be stone age, not, not to denigrate the Stone Age, but they would say that's such a stupid thing to do. And I think that's actually a very salutary lesson for us when you think about it, to judge a person on the basis of the colour of their skin is so stupid. The Romans wouldn't have had a bar of that. So, And just I'll jump in there, Jess. And, uh, but the Romans, to be a Roman wasn't to be from Rome. No. It, it was a huge empire, but to be a Roman was to exhibit certain characteristics yeah yeah fair, fair point to say yeah so yes. I'm, I'm trying to get some marks back jess sorry <laughs> you, jess you were to ask the next one no no it's good could i could just say the roman empire at its height you know first second century ad um 2000 years ago probably about 60 million people only about a million of those people lived in rome most of the people most of those 60 million people were not roman citizens they weren't Roman in that sense, but they belonged to, whether they liked it or not, they belonged to the Roman Empire. Most people in the Roman Empire were paying taxes to the Romans, exorbitant taxes, or they were slaves, they had no choice in it. So no, to be Roman doesn't mean necessarily to live in Rome, but it means to be one of those people within the empire and very different statuses according to how you were born, where you were born, who your parents were, who your friends were, things like that. But, but Tim, yeah, just oh, sorry, Jess, I'll jump in again. But to be a Roman, you could become a Roman citizen. Anyone could become a Roman citizen from the empire. You could. It wasn't easy. Um, in fact, probably the easiest way, bizarrely, to become a Roman citizen, if you weren't one already, was to become a slave. Because it looks like most slaves, um, especially in an urban environment, talking about urban environments, um, the chances of you being manumitted were quite good if your master or mistress so decreed it. And so we even hear of some people who put themselves, sold themselves into slavery in order to one day in the hope of becoming a Roman citizen. If you're a non-Roman citizen, if you're a foreigner, free-born foreigner, a peregrine, peregrinus, as they say in Latin, um, your chances of becoming a Roman citizen were very, very small, unless you were one of the elite in society and you groveled to the Romans and you helped collect Roman taxes and things like that, or you fought in the Roman army, and after 25, 30 years, if you survived, then you might, as one of your benefits, become a Roman citizen after that. So it was, in some ways, a very exclusive status and a very 
very privileged status until everyone, every free person in the Roman Empire was given citizenship in 212 AD. So they'd all pay taxes. It was a very privileged status, but also you could go from being a slave, from being the lowest of the low, to being subhuman in the Roman mind, to becoming a Roman citizen and, and suddenly moving up um, much higher in the social ladder. So yeah, it's it's not that... As again, I keep saying, it's not that everyone was equal. I think one of the most, to me, the most fundamental things about living in the Roman world was A, uh, life was could be very short and brutal if you weren't uh, a wealthy person, but also that you knew your place in society. There was room for social mobility if you were lucky or if you were hardworking, et cetera. But the best people were always those who were born into Roman citizenship. It's very, you know, having said that they weren't racist in the sense that, that many people today are in terms of judging skin colour, they certainly weren't necessarily nice, uh, woke people, to use the modern parlance. That's a really, um, really interesting introduction and, I guess, background context um, to this topic, Tim, because um, I did not study Latin at school and um, I've already <laughs> learned a lot. So thank you Good. for that. Good. Um, before we jump into... Uh, some of the town planning sort of related questions. I wanted to, I guess, sort of start off um, talking about urban utilities and services. What did the Romans think were essential to city living or city life? Mm, good question. They, most people, I talked about 60 million people in the empire, most of those people did not live in cities, but the Romans clearly fostered urbanity they're the i think one of the first societies after the greeks and the polis to foster urbanization to building cities and to be a city you needed temples you needed temples to the gods you needed a forum you needed a, a what the greeks would call an agora what we would call a, a marketplace doesn't do it justice it's the center of urban life in terms of religion in terms of um, in terms of commerce, in terms of culture, in terms of politics. So the forum, you needed baths because that is a sign of sophistication. It's a sign of um, being civilized, to use that pun. Civilized means living in a city. Um, you needed baths not just because it was a way to clean, but also because it was a way to congregate, a way to appreciate art because baths were like the great museums of the ancient world and finally you needed arenas you needed arenas for entertainment to watch drama to watch chariot racing and to watch people killing each other because that was part of being sophisticated and civilized as well so you know you ask about what's different about the romans to a roman to be able to watch people kill themselves to be able to, to watch romans kill each other rather for romans to watch others kill each other and that's really important that it's others. Um, that's part of being sophisticated and civilized. So four things, temples, forums, baths, and arenas. That's the shopping list for for having a city. Mm. Oh, Tim, what virtues did the Romans attribute to city life? Um, you talk about um, civic uh, civilization. Can you talk about how what they thought of city life, not just the fundamentals? Um, the traditional view, the the normal view, was that it was being civilized, as I've said, to be urbane. We talk about being urbane. That means to be in a city. It means to be educated. It means to be um, 
to be self-employed or not to need employment. So it's a very aristocratic view. Um, you know, in the popul in, in the city of Rome, as I've said, a population of a million people at its height. Um, the the senatorial equestrian elite is a tiny, tiny fraction, but they're the people who really write the history, define the history for us, and they d determine what it means to be in a city. You know, even though ninety nine percent of the population are not in their wage bracket or in their social bracket, um, but urbane, civilized, educated, all of these things are what it means to be cities, and that's spread throughout the empire. It was already there in the Eastern Empire to a certain extent. Um, they fostered that, but in the West, especially in Germany, in Gaul, in France, in Britain, etc. Again, the building of cities, people building new Romes, if you like, and having their own little senates and things like that, all dependent on the Roman system, building their baths. You see this throughout Roman Britain, building their baths, building their fora, building their arenas, following that model that the Romans set. So the virtues of the Romans, uh, the virtues the Romans saw in cities were about um, being sophisticated, absolutely. They denigrated uh, the agricultural, the rustic life, even though it was fundamental to their economy and the vast majority of their population lived in the countryside. Around Rome, people would be flocking into the city, bringing their merchandise, bringing their, their produce from their little farms, etc., to sell. So when we talk about, actually, when we talk about Rome having a population of a million, it would have fluctuated massively because of in-migration and out-migration. The city itself probably was a insincorator. I like to think of it as, you know, it was actually eating people because the life expectancy there would be so low, but it was the draw card to go there, not just because of uh, economy, but also because of the entertainment um, being part of, you know, Rome's streets were said to be paved with gold. They certainly weren't, but it was a draw card from throughout the empire. It was not the only city by any means, but it was by far the biggest in population in terms of density until, you know, I guess about 17th, 18th century London, something like that. Jess, I'll just jump in quickly. But Tim, there were Roman writers who talked about the virtues of the rural life and the decadence of cities yep, yep. as well. Yep, absolutely. Uh, just just as we talk about that today. Yes. So you yeah. get you get bucolic poetry, poetry set in the countryside. Virgil is a great example, where they idealize um the countryside, but in an old fashioned way. You know, it's where Romulus and Remus grew up and and you know, the good old fashioned farmers and they would get their they would put the plowshare aside and get their um going to say their gun but get their spear and go off and fight for a, a season and then come back and work on their farm but that was clearly the old-fashioned ways you get other writers and juvenile juvenile the great satirist from the the early second century ad writes a, an amazing satire satire five which i've just been reading with a class on his character umbricius has decided to leave rome because he he no longer feels um, it's not just he doesn't feel comfortable. He he can't endure the city life anymore. Full of foreigners, full of people who um, slaves who have become freed people who um, are superior to him in status, a freeborn Roman. And so he's decided to go off. Um, he thinks he's going off to the countryside. In fact, ironically, he's going off to to the the um, an even worse place possibly. But anyway, that's another story. But he talks about all the perils of living in the city as well so you get the idealized um 
attributes of civilization, etc., as opposed to the rustic, um, basic countryside. But then you also get the other side of the dangers of living in the city, and we can talk about that, um, as opposed to you know the good old-fashioned life in the countryside, idealized but probably just as unrealistic. So, Tim, what we're saying, they were they shared same very similar reflections. But sorry, Jess, I cut in. Over to you. No, I was just going to ask out of interest, Tim, um, what was the life expectancy? Um, <laughs> I've spent a lot of my working life working on this because, um, I mean, I think most people now would agree that 2,000 years ago, in the ancient Roman world, we're, we're talking about a pre-industrial society. We're talking about a very, very different demographic regime where life expectancy at birth was probably of the order of 25 years between 20 and 30 years not because everyone was dropping dead at 25 far from it but because levels of fetal um, mortality infant mortality early childhood mortality was so much higher because of levels of sanitation because of medical knowledge because of just the general environment the chances of you surviving from birth to the age of 10 were were um give a precise decimal figure you can use life tables to do this but you know we're probably talking about one in four infants dying in the first year of life across the the ancient world as a whole um if you survive to the age of 10 you're you've lost a lot of your contemporaries probably one in you're one in four or one in three but you're probably then going to go on to live in well into your 50s 60s we hear about i've done a lot of work on old age in the roman world and we hear a lot about people surviving into the 80s, 90s, or even into the early 100s. The lifespan of human beings has not, until very recent years at least, has not increased massively. It's just that very few people, relatively speaking, survived into old age. So I, I've guesstimated or estimated that about um, 7 or 8% of the Roman population would have survived into their 60s. Um, as opposed to something like 20% today. what's What makes life expectancy so low, there's never a short answer to these questions, sorry. What makes life expectancy so low in the ancient world is that infant mortality was so high. So when we talk about life expectancy at birth being 25 years, that's because you know, such a significant proportion would die before then. It would also be different according to whether you were living. In Rome, probably, life expectancy would be the lowest. And for the lower levels of society who were there for their lives, their lives would be very short and very harsh and probably very brutal and quite smelly, to be honest. Whereas if you're an upper-class Roman, you can leave Rome in summer and go somewhere else which might be healthier. Um, but because of levels of knowledge of contagion and sanitation, et cetera, um, probably life was precarious for everyone. And, and you know, the famous Latin um, quotation, carpe diem, seize the day, I think is actually a, a salutary lesson for us. You know, make the most of the moment. I think they were much more aware um, and, I'm trying to think of the right word, but not open to death, but more, less less um, hesitant to think about death because it was more omnipresent to them. I think it was, you know, life was more precious as a result, if that makes sense. So what was life expectancy? It was low, but value of life was still very high, I would say. Tim, I love the word decimal. Uh, 
that's a that's a Roman term that it we, is. Yeah, so yeah. many, so yeah. many things we think of that, decimation. You know, you yes, know about course. decimation. Yeah, and, and what was that uh, when the Roman legions failed? One in ten soldiers were. Uh, what was that term? Yes, decimation. Absolutely. Yeah, one but in ten. You, uh, one in ten soldiers were killed. But do you know who killed them? Their, their own troops. Their own troops. Yeah, this was a way to instill discipline. This was a very militaristic society, and mm. um, basically, when a Roman army had failed or had attempted mutiny or something, then decimation. Uh, it's it's you know it's a story talked about. It's like fathers. The the part of familiars having the power of life and death over his children. It's something the Romans talked about. It doesn't mean it was a daily reality by any means. But yeah, to instill discipline, they would not only um, wipe out one out of every ten soldiers, but the other soldiers would have to do that. And these were people chosen at random. You know, it was a fearful system. Again, we don't have. I, to I, I can understand why you want to come back in your time machine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Jess, yeah. were you going to ask about the perils of city life or? Oh no! Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. I was I was going to move on actually. Um, okay, Tim. You know something that we come across as town planners all the time, um, particularly in Victoria, is a lot of pushback about density, and you know quite often we're having uh, fights with with people and councils and residents and so forth about density, and you know that might be two stories, three stories. Uh, which mm-hmm. seems quite ironic given what I'm going to ask here, <laughs> is that the, the Romans had multi-storey apartment buildings. Um, I'm interested in what these were, like what what kind of buildings were they and were there any kind of building codes or limits on development and who oversaw this? Mm. Yeah, density was a problem, especially for the city of Rome because it was no, no one had seen a city like it. So a million people packed into a pretty tight space, you know, within the Aurelian walls, the, the famous walls that were built in the third century, you're looking at about 14 square kilometres from memory, about three and a half thousand acres. Um, you know, the city extended beyond those walls, but a lot of people packed in there. And so Juvenal, I've mentioned Juvenal's fifth satire. One of the, the dangers of the city that he talks about is the building collapses happening all the time because people are trying to build infrastructure. Vitruvius, the great architect, talks about you know how you can pack more space into your building by making the walls more thin, etc. So we did get, they did get, they did have multi-story buildings in the Roman world. We know about them best, perhaps, from Ostia, the harbour town of Rome, where some of the wonderful ruins of these buildings have survived. But these were some of the best built ones, which is why they've survived. In Rome itself, space was a, such a premium that people were building up and up. Um, and this is why Juvenal's talking about collapses. He moans about people throwing things from the the top stories, and, you know, again, coming back to my favourite topic of toilets, if you're at the top levels, and penthouse apartments were the cheapest because they were so far away and there were no elevators, etc. So if if you're needing to go to the loo, you're probably going to use your chamber pot rather than go down to the public toilets, and then you're going to throw it out. So Juvenal's saying, you know, the dangers of walking down the streets... But the bigger danger is not just fire as well, but also the buildings collapsing on you. Clearly, there were lots of of problems to the extent that the emperors did try and limit the heights of it. So we know that, and I'm dredging this out of my memory now, but I know that Augustus set a limit of, and please, if I'm wrong on this, email me and let me know, but Augustus set a limit of 70 feet 
which is about 20 meters, 21 meters, on building heights. Trajan, a century later, early second century, lowered that limit because clearly it was uh, becoming such a problem to 60 feet. And this is between that, you've got the great fire, the terrible fire under Nero, and a lot of that cleared the urban planning. Uh, for new urban planning. So Trajan set a limit of 60 feet. But we know, you know, I've said that we've got great, great um, examples of these apartment blocks, insulae they're called, in islands, because they were islands in their own right, you know, absolute buildings, massive buildings, multiple inhabitants. Um, the Ostia would get great examples, but you've got one right there in the centre of Rome, right beside the Forum, right beside the Capitol, one of the seven hills of Rome where the temples were, the Capitoline Insula. You can still go and see it today. Um, one of the most luxurious ones existing through the first, second centuries, Augustus and Trajan, which would have exceeded those those height limits anyway. It's a system where corruption was very high and you could bribe your way through it. So we know that the Capitoline Insula um, however many floors it was, five or six floors probably, if not more, um, 75, 80 feet at least, 24 metres, was breaking those rules already. So, you know, it, because, you know, and this is, you know, it's a very 21st century problem in terms of density, but it was a first century problem as well in terms of if you're a senator at Rome, you've got to have a, you've got to live in Rome. You've got to have a habitation in Rome. You want that to be on the Palatine, one of the Palatine or the Capitol or near the Forum. You want that to be in the centre as, a, as a Romans were very much into visual display, um, ostentation, etc. So exactly these problems, the, the rules were being set and the rules were being broken. And we know that the city magistrates who were in charge of these building codes, in charge of cleaning the streets, the edels, City magistrates who were themselves on the, I've already mentioned the cursus honorum, these are young politicians who are wanting to go up the ladder. So their job is to make sure that the rules are being enforced and that city living isn't too precarious. But these are people who want to get to the top of their profession. And so they're much more concerned about what the aristocrats, the people who own all these buildings, uh, they don't live in the buildings themselves necessarily, but they're making their money from these multi-story buildings. Cicero himself, who always criticizes people who worry about money, some of his private correspondence, it's wonderful because Cicero, we not only get his public documents, we get his his uh, his private letters that he didn't necessarily want published. He talks about the fact that he's got these buildings that are falling apart and he's telling the architects, go in and patch it up. Um, because not only are the residents leaving, the mice are leaving as well. It's so dangerous. Go in and patch it up because I need <laughs> my good. money. To the be mice are in. leaving, Tim. Yeah, he doesn't give a. He the doesn't mice give are leaving. A, That's how bad it is. He doesn't give a, a, a. He cares more for the mice possibly than he does for his well, tenants. There, there must have been very good town planning consultants in those days, Jess, um, <laughs> to get to get all these height uh, height limits broken. Absolutely, lots of variations there. Lots of discretion, by the sounds of it. Well, yeah, I, 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 lots of yeah. Discretion's one word for it, I suppose. But well, yeah, they... I imagine that they were highly paid. Many of them would have been Greeks. They probably put up with some pretty racist behaviour from these Romans um, because they were Greeks. But they made lots of money, and many of them would have been ex-slaves as well, freedmen, freed people. Um, who brought their skills into the city and then made livelihoods from that as well. So, yeah, it's part of the social tension within. It's not just buildings falling down. It's also, as a as a, a um, old-fashioned Roman citizen, your whole status crumbling before you as well because of these, mm. these building uh, consultants who are making all the money and doing well. well 
there would have been a planning consultant like Jess Noonan a long time ago getting these uh, height limits broken, Tim. Absolutely. He, he's the best in the business. Absolutely. <laughs> and and presumably the road. Timeless. Again, the, the lessons from the past. I mean, there were no, in some ways, uh, human nature doesn't change, Tim. Is that right? No, I think that's probably true. That's probably true. Um, there were, you know, it, to, it, it was a tough life and to survive, to get ahead, um, you had to, you know, learn the rules, get the good friends. Friendship was such an important thing to the Romans and it wasn't a case of, you know, who your buddy pals are. It's it's who you're uh, on the side of and the best friend to have would be the emperor. It's a patronage system as well, you know, this heavily hierarchical society. You need important people above you. So the Jesses of the ancient world who were doing the building contracts, you wouldn't necessarily get the job um, because you were the best building designer or whatever you would get the job because you had powerful friends and you would go in so it's a self-perpetuating system in that way powerful friends like you pete <laughs> no, no no now they, they left a lot of written commentary uh tim about what makes a good urban environment they discussed that i know there was the great architect uh, what was his name uh, but he talked about building. Vitruvius? Yes. Vitruvius? But, but they talk about what makes a good urban environment. Um, it depends how you define good, I suppose. So good in the sense of, of and it depends who you, who you are if you want it to be good. So someone like Cicero wants it to be good to, you know, as to further his career as a, as a politician. You know, you talk about politicians who, who direct their efforts towards the aristocrats as opposed to the lower classes. But, you know, clearly if you want to get to the head of the game, you want to have powerful friends, which means worrying more about your aristocratic friends and things like that. So who can build on the Palatine, who can build on the best location, clearing away some of the lower class slums or whatever in order to build them. Again, these are timeless factors. Um, all of these things come into play from different people, but um, always, I'm a little bit sceptical, I suppose, but I think they're always feathering their own nest. So Vitruvius does talk about, um, it's a wonderful work, and you know, I, I've got friends who are architects, and I say, go and read Vitruvius, because this is part of the legacy of, of what we're doing today in Australia in terms of our understanding of what it means to have a good building. Uh, Romans were very interested in maximising the um, space available to them, but also showing off. You know, one of the things I think we can still learn from the Romans is um, that, you know, someone was talking to me yesterday about the Pont du Gard and the, the massive aqueduct and how well it survived. Well, it survived so well because Romans were not only good at building, but they didn't think of the cheapest way to do something. They thought about the, they tend to think about the medium to long term and the best way, not only to make it look good, but actually to make it, um, you know, endure. So I think one of the, it's easy to say this, but one of the, the lessons from that is not always go for the cheapest alternative just because it's going to, you know, patch it up. The Romans would say, think about, you know, a, um, to quote Thucydides, a monument for all time. Think about something that's actually going to last to make an impact in that sense as well. Easy to say, but, you know, we're, we're currently patching up our bathroom and, and I'm urging my wife that we shouldn't go for the for the most expensive alternative we should actually just patch it up in the short term so you know i'm a hypocrite of my own terms but yeah. so no, no marble bathroom many different for stories you, from different perspectives so no marble bathroom <laughs> for you <laughs> uh, bathroom bathroom that's a luxury i can't even afford that <laughs>
but no. <laughs> Tim, no Marvel a, in there, that's for sure. <laughs> just as a side note, um, what was the means of transport predominantly in this time? Gosh, we are going around, aren't we? You mean in the city? Yeah, um, in the city. It's actually... I think that's a good question because you know a lot of people would live centrally and anyone and you're bringing your produce in the city then you would get up at the before dawn and you would put it into your wheeled vehicle because and this is a fascinating fact i think no from the time of augustus i think onwards certainly from around about um beginning of the first century wheeled transport was not allowed into the city during the day because it was so densely packed and, and busy, et cetera. Juvenile talks a lot about, you know, the dangers of walking down the street and getting barged into by soldiers standing on your feet, et cetera. There wasn't room for the transport. The only transport that was allowed into the city during the day were carriages that were helping with the building of temples because the gods were absolutely paramount, but also the carriages that were in there to clear out the sewage basically to clear out the you know a million people living in close confines you couldn't have this especially in summer you couldn't have this mess going on and so they were the only transport in but it also means that at night when all the everyone else was bringing their transport in you know just for bringing in furniture or bringing in their produce for the next day's market at the company or whatever at night the noise was phenomenal and this was um you know, it was a very, it was a 24-hour city, although you didn't have streetlights. You had streetlights in some cities in the ancient world, like Antioch, and they boasted about the fact. But in, in Rome, you needed your slaves carrying torches. Well, Tim, they complained um, about the, the night noise, didn't they? Some people. They did, absolutely. And, you know, but again, we're only hearing from the aristocrats. So Seneca the Younger, one of the wealthiest men in Rome in the reign of Nero, uh, he complains about the noise when he's staying in Rome to be near the Senate or whatever. He complains about the noise, but you know he's he's living in a in a privileged environment. For most people, um, the reality of Rome was that it was a very very noisy, smelly place, um, a tough place to live in. Absolutely, it wasn't. The streets weren't paved with gold. The streets were covered in in um, mud and and other less pleasant things as well. So. Yeah, sorry, I've gotten away from your question. No, now, no, but... no, Tim. We're coming to the end of. We could talk for hours, but uh, <laughs> you know, many think of Roman urban centres as you know, with white marble and uh, very sterile places. But they were places of great colour and vitality, advertisements and graffiti. Yeah, yeah, very lively, very noisy. I always, if if people know the life of Brian, the Monty Python film, which I absolutely love, the when he's doing the Romanes Aeont Domus and covering the walls with the red paint. I, th You know, if anyone's seen Pompeian graffiti, that's exactly what it was. People were writing up graffiti everywhere, very like Melbourne, actually, but also political statements throughout. Um, that white marble idea, um, A, it was only in the centre with the Forum, et cetera, but again, it would have been much more colourful. But also, as soon as you leave the Forum, you get into the Saburi, you get into the Soho, to use the London vernacular, you get into the the more squalid areas. It wasn't all pristine, clean by any means. And the Forum itself, Rome itself, was a very swampy area. It had to be drained. Malaria was a massive problem for Rome. Um, and, you know, if you think about the streets in Pompeii, where you get those, when you're looking down the streets and you see those big stones in the middle of the street, that's because people needed those to walk over in 
in order to because the mud levels would be so high so you know sometimes and you know i'm always very keen to talk about the splendor of the ancient world but also to talk about the squalor of it i want to see the reality of it and all of that so yes um marble absolutely romans loved showing off and you know if you go to the forum and you go to the imperial forum you go to the temples wonderful marble everywhere but there's more to uh, the reality of the ancient world than that very vital very lots of vitality very lively very noisy very smelly as i keep saying um very diverse very diverse and all of that packed environment it's an amazing example of a city and you know in various courses i've done on the history of the city starting with the ancient world because you see the variety of it but also um, the legacy of it but also some of the myths of city life i think getting to the reality of it is important too tim have you got any closing observations of roman cities and towns and can you recommend a layman's introduction of roman life for our readers now now before you enter that tim you've got a new book yep. coming out too have i Gosh, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, no, well, you've you written, do now. You've written anyway, a book, we'll, haven't we'll, you, about we'll the Roman come, life. I'm, I'm still, well, you've the asked me edition. what I can probably, <laughs> thank you. You've asked me to recommend, um, Jesse just asked me to recommend some reading, so I, I'd be far from wanting to recommend myself. But I would say if people want to read, if people are interested in city life, 2000 years ago, as it applies to the modern day, I would say start with Juvenile Satire 5. Go to my New Zealand um, Victoria University of Wellington's lecturer, uh, Alex Scobie, who wrote an amazing article called Slum Sanitation and Mortality. And people can email me if they want well, the references. We'll, we'll, we'll put the reference on our episode notes, Tim. Thank you. But that was that was showing that it wasn't all about splendor, it was about squalor. And that was 1986 he published that. And it caused a revolution in the way that people thought about the ancient city. And a lot of people didn't like it. You've also, going back to um, Fustel du Collange, the ancient city, you know, 19th century, where it really made people think about the reality of the city. If people want a, a nice fictional work, then I always recommend Lindsay Davis's books, Marcus Didius Falco. Um you know, a lot of ancient historians don't like it because it, it brings out the squalor as well as the splendor. But I think, you know, the Lindsay Davis novels from the 80s and the 90s um, and a new book just out, actually, which I've only just started reading. But it's it's actually it brings in the spatial turn. You know, the whole way we're now thinking about how important space is. Rethinking the Roman City is a collection by um, edited by Dan Dania Filippi, um, which is, you know, trying to bring in what's relevant to the 21st century from the first century and beyond as well. So there's so much, and, and people are very welcome to the details, but there's so much of, of traditional stuff, vibrant stuff about the reality, which is what I'm much more about than the ideals. The the I've done a, a source book on Roman social history with my former colleague at Wellington, um, Arthur Pomeroy, and we're about to do it called Roman Social History, a source book. Um, we're doing a new edition now, but bringing in much more of the archaeology. My wife is a is a Roman art historian archaeologist, and she's helping with this now, um, Rosalind Bell. We're going to have much more archaeology in there as well, because I have learned how important archaeology, how vital archaeology is, all this. But my book before that, just to put in a final plug, I'm currently writing a book on ancient sexual health, especially about venereal disease, sexually transmitted diseases, because I think that's an important part of not just the reality of 2000 years ago, but also the legacy, because the medical writers, um, Galen, Hippocrates, etc., they governed 
medical practice until the 18th, 19th centuries um, throughout the world, not just in the West, but the East as well in many ways. Um, and so we've got an enormous legacy again to learn from them um, about the realities of that. Well, Tim, we cover Enough. a lot of topics Enough. on Planning Exchange, and that's a new one, Jess. Indeed. But, uh, Absolutely. <laughs> we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Now we come to Podcast Extra, Tim. Uh, Culture Corner, uh, something you've read, watched, experienced, listened to that might uh, be of interest to our right. listeners. Okay. Well, I can tell you that my current bedside reading is Sam Neill's autobiography as a fellow Kiwi. It's nothing to do with the ancient world as well, but he's a delightful Kiwi and delightful human being in the 21st century. The other thing, which is much more relevant possibly to this podcast, is um, I went to a talk at Monash University and yeah, here in Victoria we have a number of great universities and we're, we're very much all on the same side collegial. At Monash University there was a great lecture given by Jill Bowen um, at Monash who works along with her colleague Colin Hope on um, an oasis site in Roman Egypt, Dakla Oasis about the town of Callis and the the archaeology, it's a great example of the evidence because the archaeology, but also the textual evidence from there, we learn so much, and the skeletons as well. We learn so much about the reality of societies, you know, in the Roman Empire, those, the diversity of those empires. But um, so the, there's a wonderful book she's written, which I'm reading um, when I'm not reading about Sam Neill, um, called Callus. Um, by Jill Bowen and Colin Hope. I'd heartily recommend that just in terms of transporting you back. And I'd heartily recommend Tim Parkin and Arthur Pomeroy's Roman Social History source book as well. Well, I think the Tim Parkin book is very underrated and it deserves <laughs> more audiences. But Thank you, uh, Peter. I'll quote you on that. <laughs> and Jess, your podcast extra. Uh, I've been, uh, I guess, inspired by one of our um, one of our earlier podcasts that we've done um, with the CEO of the Geelong Regional Library Corporation, uh, Vanessa, and um, have been spending a lot more time in the library. And there's this, I mean, it's it's common across all libraries, but there's there's generally a series of books that you can only rent out for, or sorry, loan, I should say, loan for a week. And um, it's been forcing me to actually get through a lot more books, which is good because I need a lot of podcast extras because we're um, recording quite a few um, podcast while I'm on mat leave and um, it's been great. So I've been reading up a storm and um, my most recent one was by Fiona McIntosh um, called Dead Tide, which is a sort of murder mystery book, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. And be pleased to know, Pete, I've read it in four days, which is a new record for me. Oh, Jess, you've got so much, you're such a credit. I mean, Jess, you, you, I can only aspire to a part of what you achieve. But, <laughs> I've even, got all the even, time in the world these days. Mate. Even with a bad cold, Jess is still 
she oh, she, the reading. She's shy. So, uh, I'm spending my days yeah. lying on the couch reading books. It's great. <laughs> she's, she's bright and shiny and I'm grey. But uh, <laughs> What about just, you, Pete? Uh, well, I, I watched a great video the other day called My Father and Me by Nick Broomfield. It was about his father, Morris Broomfield, who was a terrific photographer of post-war uh, British industry. And he's and I've also looked at his uh, the book, uh, the V&A uh, Museum in the UK have released a book about uh, titled Industrial Sublime about uh, Morris Broomfield. He, he went to a lot of industries, Tim, uh, post-war in the UK and photographed beautifully a lot of the industrial techniques wow. that were, and 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 just gave credit to the craftsmanship and the skill involved in industrial processes the blue Very collar cool. gray collar and yeah. it's a lost past and we have yeah, that in australia yeah. as well but yeah. uh and his son who's a he's made many many films uh made uh a very very touching movie about his father, and you know, titled "My Father and Me," and uh, it's a real father and son thing, Jess. Um, and it's you know, when you watch it, you it, it I won't say the word bites, but it touches a lot of emotions. Mm. So, and but also the subject, um, his photography is you know, pure art. So that would be my uh, podcast extra. Uh, very good. Tim, any thoughts on that? Well, very good indeed. I mean, it reminds me of my my Manchester days where we would go to the to visit some of the old cotton mills. And also, you know, mm. I'm, there's not much I miss about Manchester, it's got to be said, but um, some of that history and also the working houses, you know, around Britain and um, just you know the industrial you know getting to the we had the people's museum in manchester as well which you know just to get down to dirt level so to speak and you know that's um yeah it's inspiring and i'm certainly going to go and look at that book you've just mentioned the photos sound brilliant and the movie as well now uh, listeners indulge me for a moment and yes you indulge me all the time but <laughs> when when i was doing latin at school listeners we had peacocks in the garden, and Tim has told me off pre-recording uh, that my Latin teacher said, bring the peacocks in, because we had a Latin feast each year. But, Tim, peacocks aren't that good to eat, you say? Well, I don't know, because I've never eaten a peacock myself, but I know that Juvenal, again, um, keep talking about one of my favourite authors, uh, he talks about the fact that Romans would eat peacock because they liked this display, as I keep talking about, this extravagance to be seen to be wealthy and extravagant. Um, they would eat peacock and then they'd get into their hot baths and they would die because the peacocks were still cooking within them. And so it's sort of a, a this is why peacock feathers are unlucky, I think, not just the evil eye, but also because peacocks, these beautiful birds that 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 savages like the Romans and savages like Peter Jewell at his school were um, daring to eat these peacocks. So, you well, know, well, well, Tim, I don't, I don't want to criticize no, you no, too no, harshly. Tim, our, our peacocks were called Zeus and Apollo. So don't be too harsh on me, but um, yes, keep your peacocks <laughs> safe from the Romans. 
<laughs> no, absolutely. Will. Sorry, Thank I should I shouldn't yeah. have finished on that negative note. One of <laughs> no, no, one of no, our no. one of our PhD students, just a final ad. One of our PhD students, Ash Green, has just published a book on birds in the Roman world, and it's it's a I've learned so much from Ash, um, Ashley Green about birds. But for example, just to finish on a, an educative didactic note, um, I always think. Vultures are evil and owls are wonderful, but the Romans thought the other way around. Owls were seen as birds of very bad omen, whereas vultures were seen. And possibly this is because vultures were there to clean up the dirty streets, unlike the eagles. So we're more worried about their political career, as I've said. Um, but vultures were actually seen as good things because they would clean up detritus, whereas owls were seen as birds of bad omens. So, but she also talks about peacocks. So I refer you to Ashley Green, Roman birds and life and myth. Oh, Tim, what a great po- what a great <laughs> interview. Yes, <laughs> I want to go back to Pompeii. Jess, I've learned so much. This let's get the time machine just for one day. <laughs> return ticket. You. Don't forget the return ticket. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tim. And Thank thanks you both. always, Jess. Thanks, Thank Tim. Really appreciate it. Really, yeah. really Look after your cold, Jess. And, I will. And pleasure pleasure talking to both of you. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcast, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud, or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn, or website for behind-the-scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout-out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast. <laughs>